Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. You know, the more I study Scripture, the more I'm amazed by it. But you know what? I, I can't help but to think that we've become almost too familiar with Jesus to the point that we miss some of the grandeur of what he said. Let not your heart be troubled. John 14, 1. It's wonderful enough that he said that, but knowing the setting when he said this is the only way you can really grasp the immensity of it. It almost makes it a little difficult to hold back tears. Let not your heart be troubled. Now, when he said that, Jesus was gathered with his friends in the upper room. Now, to the disciples, they thought the occasion for the gathering was simply to celebrate another Passover. I'm sure they had done it a few times as a group before. It was a holiday. But before long, things began to turn around. Shortly after all the guests arrive, I'm sure all of the members of his inner circle started noticing that Jesus was acting a little differently than they had seen him act before. John's Gospel tells us a couple of times during the narrative of this scene that Jesus' spirit was troubled. Now, when someone's spirit is troubled, you notice it. Even Jesus. I tell you all the time, you must never forget that Jesus was fully human as well as fully divine. Well, the evening of that particular Passover, the last Passover Jesus would ever celebrate, he started doing things that his friends had never seen him do before. I mean, at some point in the evening, he even knelt down to wash the feet of his friends. That must have seemed odd. Peter, always the one to speak his mind, even asked Jesus why he was doing such an unexpected thing. And it was at this point that the whole festive scene turned, well, ominous. Earlier, Jesus had been talking about betrayal, and then that whole thing when Judas suddenly left the room. Something strange was going on. 
then Jesus started talking about the fact that he had to leave and that they weren't going to be able to follow him for the time being. I'm sure by now, the disciples were starting to get a little worried. Now get into this. We don't put much thought into these things. This atmosphere of celebration was now turning to tension and fear. And then Peter, ever the bold statement maker, says that he was going to lay his life down. Hey, wait, wait. And the others must have been thinking, why are we, why are we talking about laying our lives down? What's going on here? What's happening? Let not your heart be troubled. Calm down, everyone. Let's just calm down. This was an incredibly tense moment. Listen, I've told you before, Jesus knew fully what he was about to suffer. If anyone should be freaking out, it should have been Jesus. But instead, he, as he always did, took control of the situation. My friends, no matter what's going on in your life, Jesus can take control. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. This was a moment for a bold statement, not a Simon Peter bold statement, a real bold statement with truth attached. And by the way, This is what I meant earlier. We're just a little too spoiled, I think. We don't get the full impact of this statement. Jesus was saying, hang on, everybody. Don't worry. You believe in God, don't you? Then you also believe in me. That's what he said. That's what he was saying. Jesus was equating himself with God. Now, to an ancient Jew, this was an incredible statement. This was an unbelievable statement. It should be incredible for us too today. Now, I've said this to you before many times, and I'm just going to mention it again real quick before moving on because it's a bit off topic. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. That's Jesus' words. Jesus went around making claims about himself that no one has a right to make, unless they're true. Let me ask you something. If, If one morning I spend this program telling you that I was the Son of God and that there is something wrong with you and that only I can fix it. And I tell you that, you know, before Abraham was, I was. And then I tell you, you know, I'm greater than your temple or your church. If I told you all of those things, what would you think? Well, you'd certainly turn off the broadcast. And I'm pretty sure you'd spend the next few hours complaining to others of what kind of an egotistical jerk I am. If Jesus wasn't who he said he was, then there is nothing at all to respect about him. 
If you don't believe that Jesus is God, as he told those disciples in the upper room he was, then you should stop going to church, if you go to church. If you don't believe in the absolute truth of the statement Jesus made to Philip, which was, when you see me, you've seen the Father. You remember that part of the Bible, right? You remember when Jesus said to Philip, when you see me, you've seen the Father. Philip was saying, well, how are we going to know the Father? And Jesus said, when you see me, you've seen the Father. If you don't believe that, there is absolutely no reason for you to go around telling anyone you're a Christian. You have a choice to make. This is a black or white choice. Either you are a Christian and believe he is God, or you're just wasting your time. What's your point, John? You have to face the reality that you just can't give Jesus your half-hearted attention. If he is who he says he is, then you can't possibly give him less than your total commitment because he said he's God and he's invited you to follow him. He's invited you to be his disciple. He's invited you to learn from him and to follow him. And if you don't believe he was telling the truth when he said those sorts of things, then why are you following a liar? Why are you following a delusional person at best? There's no reason for it. I'm letting you off the hook. I don't have the power or authority, but I'm just appealing to your logic. If you don't believe that Jesus was God as he said he was, then you really have no business following him. You can't believe anything else he says. See, you don't get to decide what he said and what he didn't say. He said it all. Like, if you're going to decide what he said and didn't say, again, you're wasting your time. He said he was God. Either you believe that or go follow Buddha, because he never said that. The Buddhists have said that. Buddha never said he was God. If you don't believe a human being can be God, go follow Buddha. Jesus said he was God, and you should follow him the way he says, because he's God. If you don't believe that and you don't accept that, move on. If, on the other hand, you do grasp the enormity of what he says about himself, ye believe in God, believe also in me, then he deserves your all. If he is who he says he is, then you must turn your life over to him. But if he's not, don't bother. Don't bother with him at all. Don't go around saying, well, he's a lovely man, or what a great prophet, or his words speak to me, because we don't say those things about liars. We don't say those things about delusional people. There is no room in God's universe for middle ground. 
One time Jesus said he spits out the lukewarm. He'd rather you be hot or cold. He'd rather you love him or hate him. Don't be both. There's no other choice. Now you may say, well, John, I'm just, I'm not sure yet. That's perfectly fine and understandable. But isn't something this huge worth working on until you can be sure one way or the other? I suggest that if you've yet to make up your mind whether or not Jesus is really God, that you spend as much time as possible, as soon as possible, trying to figure out that answer because time is limited. And Jesus will not accept anyone in heaven that says, I'm not sure. He's going to say, if you believe, come on in. If you're still not sure, time's up. I've given you plenty of time. That may sound unpleasant to you. That may sound arrogant to you. No more arrogant than him saying he was God. I'm trying to lay out a practical case for you pursuing Christ. Either he is or he isn't. And if you're not sure, your clock is ticking. He's going to expect you to make a decision. There's no place in heaven for agnostics, nor atheists, only Christians. <gasps> Does that mean if, if someone is not a Christian, they don't get into heaven? Exactly. That's not me saying it. That's what God says. That whosoever believeth in his son shall have eternal life. Doesn't say anything about Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or anyone else. It said his son. His son is Jesus. Don't procrastinate. Make a decision as soon as you can. Sidebar over. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus was addressing confused, frightened, bewildered, worried men. His plan to comfort them, listen to me, his plan to ease their confusion, their fear, their bewilderment, their worry, was to tell them to believe. Faith is the starting point. Yes, of course, we've covered faith many times in this ministry, but today we're at it again. But today is going to be a little bit different. Now, usually we look at faith as a sort of commandment. Now, I completely recognize that this ministry focuses not on what God does for us, but rather what we do for God, our responsibilities toward God. Most of the time, we're focusing on what the kingdom expects from us. And faith is a responsibility. John 6, 28. Listen to this. I, I don't think you've heard this before, but it is in the gospel. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, Get ready for this. 
This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. If you want to do what God wants you to do, then believe on him whom he hath sent. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. The first epistle of John tells us something else. Chapter 3, verse 23. And this is his commandment. Now remember, this is this is John, the very dear friend and probably relative of Jesus. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. John was telling those to whom he addressed his letter, which is all of us, because the Holy Spirit was in it. This is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus. No, God's not going to force you into believing, but faith is expected from the child of God. For the most part, that's how we in this ministry have taught about faith as a commandment, as John did in his first letter. But today, I want to talk about faith as a resource. I want us to talk about what faith can do for us. Those good men in the upper room were about to come apart. You could just feel it. And Jesus pulled the most powerful arrow from his quiver and shot it at the devil to protect his friends. And that arrow was faith. The devil was trying to get in the midst of those men to make them come apart. And Jesus said, stop. You believe in God? Believe in me. Have faith. And in this lesson, we're going to see what faith can do for us. I know, kind of out of character. But I can't be a one-trick pony, can I? God expects a lot but he offers much more. We need faith. Faith can help us. Remember that we said in the name Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua, and that the name in Yeshua means the Lord helps? Once again, we turn to the first epistle of John, where he says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, you biblical scholars out there have noticed that word advocate, and you know that it's translating the Greek word parakletos. You know that because you're smart Bible scholars. And I know you also know that the word Parakletos is very often associated with the Holy Spirit. Most of the time we think of parakletos meaning the Holy Spirit. But do you see here that parakletos is also associated with Jesus? Now, to me, that's more proof of the Trinity. But did you know that not only is parakletos translated into the word advocate, 
not a word we use every day, but it's also translated, parakletos is also translated into our word helper. John's epistle says, if any man sin, we have a helper with the Father. We have somebody we can turn to, an advocate, Jesus Christ. He's our helper. Now, that's not a word we need to define, is it? Listen to me. Like every good father, God knows when things are going rough for you. And, like every good father, God wants to help. God's help is like an energizing force. And like all energizing forces, like electricity, God's help needs a switch. There needs to be a way to deliver the power from the powerhouse to where the power is needed, right? When you flip that switch on the basement stairs to help you see your way down, you're taking the power the energizing force from its origin to where you need it, right? That's what the switch does. It is the mechanism by which the delivery of that force helps you. Something has to be in place to deliver God's power. And God's mechanism for the delivery of his power is faith. Faith is the switch that delivers the power from God to your need. That's why it's so important to God that you know this. Just as a side note, it's a commandment of God that you believe because there's no other way he can work in your life without flipping that switch. If I don't turn that light on as I go down into the basement, I'm going to trip and fall and my trip will end a lot faster. My, my journey to the basement will end a lot faster than I expect it to. It will be fruitless. If you don't flip the switch of faith. God's power cannot enter into your life and then you will be useless to him. We're not talking about that today. We're talking about faith as a way to help. Today, we're talking about faith and what it can do for us. So let's start reading. Tell me if you haven't heard this before. For God so loved the world. You've already heard it once already in this message. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Belief is faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever flipped the switch so that the power of salvation can flow, if whoever Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's pretty powerful, wouldn't you say? That's pretty helpful, wouldn't you say? 
Romans 4, 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justify the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. When you believe in the righteousness of Christ, the power of God to deliver the righteousness to you. Listen, your righteousness is not going to get you into heaven. You need God's righteousness. You have to open the door to God's righteousness. And the way you do that is believing in Christ. That flips the switch and then God's righteousness flows through that switch into your life. And then you can cross the gates of heaven. Just like Jesus did. Exactly as Jesus did. Now, to many of you, this is sort of Christianity 101, but can I say we cannot become so familiar with the fact that faith saves that we underestimate it or worse, become callous to it? The mightiest of all benefits of faith is its power to save, and we must never treat that lightly because we have to present that truth to an unbelieving, sinning world, a world that's perishing. We have to deliver that. We have to present it. We have to honor that faith. We have to show the world that the way that you overcome your sin-ridden state is faith. Don't underestimate the power of faith to save. Don't Set it off in the corner as if unnecessary now. I'm Okay, I've got that now. I'll put that in my little magic bag. Now, having said all that, the power of faith has never been only reserved for salvation. You know that. Salvation isn't the only experience that you'll have in your life that calls for faith. God never intended faith to be a single-use ticket. It just so happened that God unlocked the blessing of faith when we were saved. Our salvation opened the power of faith to us. Let's look at some of the other ways that faith can help us. Firstly, faith assures success in our endeavors for Christ. That's the important part. If you're a building speculator and you want God's help, taking that to God must have attached to it something that will help God if you want success. Whenever we embark on some new adventure for God, we must take that to God in prayer and then believe that God will help us to be successful. And there are a number of examples of this truth in Scripture. Remember David's friend Jonathan. We've talked about him on this program before. He was the son of King Saul, the first king of Israel, the king right before David. His son was Jonathan. Jonathan and David were dear friends. And this was a good man, this Jonathan. How very different the son was from the father. Remember, it was just in this 
story of Jonathan. It was just he and his armor bearer against a, a camp full of enemy Philistines. You talk about impossible odds. It takes a brave man to face long odds, but it takes an even braver man to face his problems knowing he's incapable of going it alone. 1 Samuel 14, 6. And Jonathan, remember we're talking about faith. What can faith do for me in my endeavors for God? And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. One time our Lord told Peter to launch out into the deep. Well, that's what Jonathan is doing. Elsewhere, Scripture tells us to come boldly to the throne of, throne of grace. That's what Jonathan is doing. Faith will take us places that we on our own wouldn't nor couldn't ever venture to go. Just Jonathan and the armor bearer against a whole camp of Philistines. And Jonathan wanted to take that camp for the Lord. Now, nobody says be foolish. But you can be bold when you take these things before the Lord. Now, I want you to notice something here. It's another side road, but let's, re let's take a look at something with regard to how we believe. This is important. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Now, some people read that statement as doubt. Wrong. That first part of Jonathan's statement is reverence. Come, and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised, it may be that the Lord will work for us. We can learn so much from the short life of this great man. Jonathan, a son of a king, knew his place with respect to the Lord. You see, Jonathan counted on God's help without demanding it be done in his own way. I have literally heard people take faith and try to beat God over the head with it. I once knew a man who needed healing in the worst way. And he insisted publicly on demanding that God heal him. The man said God must heal him in order to be true to his word. My friends, Faith is characterized by a sense of expectation, not impertinence. God is not our waiter. You will not snap your fingers at God whenever you need your miracle. It doesn't work that way. If you think that boldness and rudeness are the same thing, you're wrong. 
when we approach boldly, it had better be with reverence. You see, part of what faith does is it lets us know who God is and who we are. When we believe that God is the most powerful, holy being in the entire universe, then we approach God with reverence, not arrogance. If we lack faith that God is who he says he is, then we risk being arrogant and demanding from God. We take God's word as if it's our own personal prescription for happiness. I believe that's a lack of faith. You don't believe that God can wipe you out just like that. When Jesus taught us to pray, didn't he say to say that God was our Father? Now, this doesn't mean as much today as it did in the days gone by. But when we say our Father, it is in recognition of his authority over us. Fathers are in charge of the family. When we say our Father, it is in recognition that He is our authority. Even then, Jesus didn't want you to forget that He was not only our Father, but we were to recognize that His name is hallowed, meaning holy. Never forget that your Father is holy. Respect His holiness. Jonathan did not expect that God was going to do things Jonathan's way but he did expect God to be victorious. That's a mature child of God who understands what faith is and what it can do. Listen, it's a very dangerous mistake to try to restrict God's methods to something only we see as the best way. Lots of strong Christians have had their faith shaken to the core when things don't go according to how they thought they should go, when they took God's authority from him and assumed that God was going to do things the way they wanted it done, it has the tendency to destroy faith. Your faith will remain firm when you don't try to put God in a box, so to speak. I mean, this is what got the Jews in so much trouble, isn't it? They thought the Messiah should restore Israel in a way they could approve. They lost their faith in God's Messiah because they lost faith in God's plan, and it cost them thousands of years of fellowship with God. Listen, if you just get one thing straight, you don't know it all and God does, your life will take on a whole different track. When faced with uncertainty, always know that God is always in control. When what's going on around us frightens us or looks contrary to what we thought God should be doing, 
Turn to his word, which says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. When you think that things are not going the way you think they should, don't think they're going bad. Just remember, God does things the way he sees fit. When you recognize and depend on God's sovereignty over your life and trust His ways over your own, you won't be disappointed. And listen, I'm talking to myself as much as to you. Okay? So let's keep moving. What else can faith do to help? We can go as far back as the father of faith, Abraham to see faith's results. You know the story. God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Again, this is probably not the way you or I would have done things, nor Abraham for that matter. This is not the way we would provide a burnt offering for God's pleasure, but Abraham was obedient. Despite what it looked like to him circumstantially, Abraham didn't waver. When everything looked its bleakest on the way up to that up that mountainside, Abraham said, God will provide himself for a burnt offering. Now there are lots of deep spiritual lessons here, but I want to stay on track. This is already going quite long. Abraham's goal was to be obedient and to please God. But to do so meant, at least on the surface, a great deal of pain and sacrifice. However, Abraham remained faithful and said, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. I know what God wants. I know it's going to be painful, but I believe. I have faith. God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Again, I say you know the story. God rewarded Abraham's faith with success. I think success even Abraham didn't expect. You see, I hate to harp on the same thing here, but Abraham trusted God's way to success. Listen, Abraham would not have chosen to sacrifice his only son, the son of promise. But he knew God had a plan and said it. He said God will provide himself a lamb. He trusted and had faith in the ways of God, not his own ways. Remember, today's lesson is the other side of faith. That's what I've named this. Now, we usually approach faith as part of obligation to God. We regularly remind you of what the letter to the Hebrews says, which says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is. That word must implies obligation. The original Greek word is dion. The word dion means that it's necessary, that we are bound to believe if we want to come to God. But faith has its rewards as well. 
Listen, that's how God is. He commands us to do what will bring us benefit. Isn't that incredible? That's what I call the other side of faith. Having faith, believing is powerful. And anyone who's committed to rolling their burdens off on God in faith can attest to what believing can do. I don't think that typical Christian ever attempts to stretch the boundaries of what faith can unlock. Remember very quickly that faith in itself doesn't have the power. We don't worship believing. Faith releases the power. Faith is what some have called the lever or the fulcrum for you physics fans. I'm not one of them. It's faith that provides the mechanism through which God's power can flow. Why? I don't know. It doesn't say. But why is knowing why important? It isn't. Remember what Scripture tells us about Christ even after he performed miracle after miracle through the land? Matthew 13, 57. And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Mighty works cannot come into your life without belief. Even in Jerusalem, Jesus could not do mighty works because they didn't believe. The fulcrum, the lever, the switch of faith was not activated and the power of Christ couldn't flow. He had the power. He had proven it time and time again all over the land. That's what I meant. He had shown miracle after miracle after miracle. And each time he leaned on the faith of the individual receiving the miracle. Those that had come to him expecting a miracle were coming to him in faith and he used their faith as the mechanism by which his power flowed. That's the power and purpose of faith. It's the channel by which the power of God can flow. The great evangelist F.B. Meyer once said, The absence of expectant faith does more to limit the progress of the gospel than the lack of funds. You could be the richest church on the face of the earth, and if you have no faith in the congregation, if the congregation has no faith, God's purposes will not move forward. The progress of the gospel, as F.B. Meyer called it, will be limited. And I will say again, what's the point of having a church if you're limiting the progress of the gospel? Your purpose in this life is to move the progress of the gospel down the field, so to speak. If you don't have faith, that's not going to happen. Because you need God's power. And the only way that God's power is going to flow into your church is you have to have the congregation believing. Faith.
faith, more than anything else, assures the purpose of our lives given us by God himself will bear fruit. You know, to hear Jesus tell about it, unimaginable things can be accomplished when we believe. For verily I say unto you, Mark eleven twenty three, 23, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Now, this is one of those passages that just seems too hard to believe. Now, at the time, Jesus was standing on Mount Olivet. So when he was referring to this mountain, he was referring to Mount Olivet. Now, the next geographical reference in that verse is the sea. Be thou removed and cast into the sea. Now, that Sea is a little more difficult to nail down. And so if by the sea, Jesus meant the nearest sea to Mount Olivet, from what I can tell, that's the Dead Sea. Well, the Dead Sea is about 10 to 15 miles away from the mountain that Jesus was standing on. Sending a mountain 10 to 15 miles away, that's a pretty mighty hurl. Now, if Jesus meant, as some commentators assume, the Sea of Galilee, then we're talking about 70 miles. Now, I suppose when you're chucking a mountain, it probably doesn't matter if it's 13 or 70 or even one mile. Throwing a mountain any distance would be a mighty deed, an incredible feat, an unbelievable achievement. So unbelievable, in fact, that most Christians including learned, respected, strongly faithful pastors, ministers, and priests, and scholars just don't believe that Jesus meant this literally. Even proudly fundamentalist commentators and preachers think that Jesus must have been talking figuratively here. I'm quoting Meyer again. The absence of expectant faith does more to limit the progress of gospel of the gospel than the lack of funds. I don't see anything in that verse or anything in the life and teaching of Jesus that would lead me to believe that he meant anything other than what he said. Like Gene Scott used to say, if I believe he came out of that tomb, I can believe anything. Jesus said, unless he was purposely trying to mislead, but why would he do that? Let's just assume he meant it. He said, if you have enough faith, you can throw a mountain at least 10 miles. And I believe him. The problem so far for me is I haven't gotten there yet. I wish I had. I'm still working on it. I strive to have mountain-moving faith. Not only because Jesus expects it out of me, but it's also going to help me. But can I say before we get too further on, I'm not talking about faith 
and its ability to make you wealthy and comfortable and loved or whatever else. I'm talking about faith and its ability to help us walk with God. Faith that will assist us in achieving God's call in our lives. Because faith, that kind of faith comes from God. That kind of power comes from God. God isn't interested in anything outside of his own personal interest. God is not just going to make you happy to the exclusion of his own purposes. Get that straight. So when God is talking about being able to chuck a mountain 13 or 70 miles, he's telling you for his purposes, you'll have that sort of faith. John, don't you believe that God wants us to be wealthy? Listen, God is going to do whatever it takes to make you fruitful. If you're poor, it's going to take wealth to make you a productive member of his kingdom, then that's what he's going to do, make you wealthy. If you're already wealthy, but it's going to take poverty to make you a productive member of his kingdom, then that's what he's going to do. But let's not talk about that today. Let's not talk about the details. Let's just concentrate on the faith part. I don't know what God has in store for you. I don't know what your faith is going to accomplish for you. But I do know this. It's going to make the kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. That's, isn't that what Jesus also taught us to pray? Jesus wasn't interested in your wealth. He didn't say, and pray God make me wealthy. He said, pray that God's kingdom will come. Yes, he said, also pray for your daily provision. That's not wealth, that's provision. If it's going to take you being wealthy to accomplish God's kingdom on earth, then you're going to be wealthy. If it's going to take you being poor, then you're going to be poor. Whatever it takes, God is going to do. And your faith is the key to making that happen, to making God's power flow to you. I know I'm beating a dead horse. I know this is going long. I'm trying to speed up to the end. You know most of this, but we have to go over it. You have to make sure this is firmly entrenched in your spirit. God is going to do what it takes to make his kingdom flourish on this earth. Are you following me? I want this lesson to show God's wonders so that you can be inspired to seek a stronger relationship with him in faith. Believe it or not, there's a small band of regular listeners to this program that I feel responsible for in some way. I also have family and friends that I want to show what faith can do. We're all called to show the world what faith can do. Second Chronicles 2020, and they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Believe in the Lord your God, 
so shall ye be established. Now the scene or the background or the environment of this exhortation was a battle, a huge battle, a battle where the Judahites were far outmatched. Either you or someone in your life is facing those sorts of odds. The problems that face us very often seem too big to handle. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Do you see the word believe there in verse 20? Believe is translating the Hebrew word ahman. Now, do you see the word established there in verse 20? Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Well, established is also translating the Hebrew word aman. Once again, the translation isn't helping us. It's not properly communicating what Jehoshaphat was telling his people. You see, once again, our full understanding is hampered if we only read the translation. Once again, our full understanding is hampered if all we simply do is read our Bible. So many Christians think that they're doing themselves some sort of service by reading the Bible from cover to cover over and over in their lives. I've told you this before. Go to your local Christian bookstore and you'll find plenty of resources that will lay out a plan to help you read the Bible through in a given amount of time. Most of the time, those plans have you finishing in about a year, but there are even plans that allow you to complete the whole thing in 90 days. It's just another attempt on our part to check some task off of our list that we're just sure God's going to approve of. Sure, it's mindless and more labor than love, but surely God will see I'm doing it for Him. God should really hear my prayers now. I mean, after all, no one else I know loves God so much as to blow through His precious word as fast as I can. John, is your sarcasm trying to tell me that reading my Bible is bad? No. But it's bad if you treat it with as much reverence as you do brushing your teeth. This is life and death. There's absolutely no other way to characterize God's Word. And if you don't take the time to really understand? Well, you're going to miss something. If you're going to blow through the Bible in a year just so that you can say you went through the Bible in a year, or just so you say you read it from cover to cover, you're going to miss something. Do you want to miss something as important as life and death? Take your time. You can't just hurry to the end. I want to keep talking about that. We have to keep moving, though. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. The original Hebrew is so much more powerful than this. 
both the word believe and the word established are translating the Hebrew word ahman. Now, we've, we've taught on that word many times before. It's very difficult word to define, but in the King James, it's very often translated as it is here to the word believe. Sometimes into the English word trust, other times the English word sure. But, interestingly, it's also translated into the English word nurse. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. That's Ahman. The same word that gets translated believe, trust, sure, also gets translated into the word nurse. Isn't that interesting? And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame of his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel, and his nurse, Achman, took him up. Both of those instances of the English word nurse translate the Hebrew word Achman. Isn't that interesting? Let's see what the academic sources say about this word Achman, see if we can make the connection. The complete word study dictionary states the primary meaning of Aman is that, listen to this, is that of providing stability and confidence. Have you ever seen a mother nursing her child? We see it more and more in public these days, and I think that's a good thing. I think then because of that, most of you have seen it. Most of you have witnessed a child at the breast. It's very common. It's a beautiful thing. A child is crying, seemingly inconsolable. We dads think all we need to do is jingle our keys or make funny faces to solve everything. Usually after no more than 90 seconds, dad is handing this wailing, flailing, face-ridden creature to mama. We look at mama and we say, well, why aren't you concerned? That baby is turned into a velociraptor. Then mama does whatever it takes to pull her breast out to get ready to link up. Now we look at that. We dads are like, that's going to hurt. I mean, this child is a wild child. That's going to hurt. But then the connection is made between mama and baby. Instant peace. Now, unless it's your own wife and child, I don't re recommend you stare. But next time that situation comes up, notice the child. What is it that that child is doing, especially in those first few moments? That baby is hanging on for dear life. Starting to see why this word aman gets translated nurse in the English. That baby is clinging to that mother because to that little one, it is a matter of life and death. And even though that baby doesn't know very much at this point, it knows that. 
that now sweet little cherub has a talon-like grip on, what it knows will give it life and peace, and it's not going to let go. That is precisely what faith is. Amon faith is clinging faith. Amon faith is gripping faith. It's gripping what will make you safe and secure, just like that little child. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Alexander McLaren, the Scottish-born English preacher from the late 19th and early 20th century, translates this verse this way. He says, it should say, hold fast by the Lord your God and you will be held fast. Stay yourselves on him and you will be stable. Faith's greatest benefit is its ability to ground us, to calm us, to quiet us down, to minimize our panic. Jesus calmed those men down, those frightened men, those confused men, by telling them, believe. Establish yourself. Be firm on me. You believe in God. Believe in me. He didn't judge those men for being terrified. He didn't judge those men for being confused. He knew why they were upset. God doesn't have a problem with your fear. He knows you're just human as long as you know where to take that fear. As long as you don't live in the fear, you live in the faith. As usual, we have to end this before we're finished. My hope is, is that in this lesson, you're able to see the mighty power of faith. I want you to really see it. You know, too often in our evangelical world, we, we talk about faith as if it's some commodity, something so common that we hardly give it a second thought. That's not the way Jesus wants you to treat it. Don't treat faith as some piece of furniture in some corner somewhere that you hardly notice it. Faith is the key to opening up all of the wonders of a relationship with God himself. Make sure your faith is always on hand to clear the way for God's love and grace to reach you, not only in times of trouble, but at all times, as we make our way through the life he's given us. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan.
Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.